You are listening to How Bass Music Shaped British Society, a podcast series exploring the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised music, from sound, business and culture to people, preservation and society. My name is Linton Quasi Johnson. I was born in 1952 in a, a town called Chapleton, the parish of Clarendon, Jamaica. I came to England in 1963 and I've been living here ever since. When I was a child in Jamaica, um, <clears throat> the music that um, I was surrounded by would be um, the folk, the music of the folk culture of Jamaica, mentor, work songs, digging songs, um, um, music from the church, um, gospel music, um, and we were a very poor family, so we didn't. We had neither radio. Um, television was a novelty in those days. We didn't have a radio, so <clears throat> the only time you would hear any music outside of that would be in a jukebox. Um, and uh, in those days, it would have been um, ska, the early music of ska. And um, occasionally a sound system might come to the village and play. And you could stay in your yard and hear maybe about two, three miles away <clears throat> um, sounds coming, coming through. But yeah, Jamaican folk music, ska, mento, um, folk songs, spiritual music of the church. So that, you seem to be describing an environment which is saturated with music. I mean, how important was music, would you say, in the Jamaica that you grew up in? I don't know about the importance of the music. The music was just there, you know. It was as part of the cultural environment in which you grew up and um, you socialized, you were socialized into it. You know, um, you learnt the songs that you, you, your grandparents or your parents would be singing, folk songs as well as um, spirituals. Um, but it was very much um, uh, a part of the, the, the cultural environment, you know. What um, precipitated your move from Jamaica to England? Well, my mother belonged to that post-Windrush generation <clears throat> that came to England um, in search of a better life and to help with the business of reconstruction. And um, as a child, I was sent for to join my, my, my mother here. And that's how I got... It wasn't, it wasn't me making a decision to come here. I came here as a kid. So you're, at one point your mother left? and left you in Jamaica and then mm -hmm. call, called for you to arrive. Mm -hmm. um, different people describe these things in different ways. Stuart Hall writing about this talks very strongly about the way in which Jamaican children were brought up to believe in some sense in the British Empire and believe they were British. Did you, did you believe you were British at that point? Well, we all did. Um, but we still had a strong Jamaican... Um, we still, had a we still had strong Jamaican roots. It was very evident in our way of life, which is basically what culture is, way of life. Um, my kind of background is um, 
miles removed from the kind of um, background that um, Stuart Hall came from. Stuart Hall came from a, a brown middle class family. Um, I came from a, a black peasantry. So, um, you know, in school, we were, um, we got the British colonial education, but at a, at a much more basic level than someone like Stuart Hall who went to one of the elite schools. And so, can you describe to me just a little bit about what it felt like? Like, how actually did you arrive in, in, in England? Did you come by boat? Where did you arrive? I arrived in England in November 1963. I came on an aeroplane uh, on BOAC back in those days. Um, and um, I was met at Victoria by my mother. I was very disappointed in what I saw. It was a grey November day and it was um, very depressing and bleak and, you know, in, in your childhood mind you have a, um, a picture of England as being a, you know, wonderful place, the mother country, streets of London paved with gold and people going around in carriages and, and so on and so forth. So it was a bit of a rude awakening when I actually saw the grey brick buildings. Um, everything seemed great. Um, <clears throat> as opposed to Jamaica, where everything was very bright and colourful. Can you, can you extend that to what it sounded like initially? I don't know whether you, was it even, you were aware of music when you came, but what, what was the sort of... No, there wasn't, any, there wasn't any immediate consciousness of music. I mean, that came after I <clears throat> settled down and began to go to school. And um, would listen to whatever was on the radio, you know. So you did have a radio in your house at that point? We would listen to the radio, you know, and um, we were listening to whatever was on the radio. British pop, the British pop music of the day, a lot of it um, influenced by American R&B. Beatles, Rolling Stones, you know, the Kinks, um, that kind of stuff. And um, ska music. Um, my stepfather had a, a blue spot gram on which she used to play these um, early ska tunes and some old Jamaican folk tunes like um, <clears throat> Night Food by Chins Combo, which is, was basically a mentor band. And back in those days, they, I think up to the late 50s or so, they used to promote um, mentor as Calypso. Well, it really wasn't Calypso, but there's a similarity between the two musics as Jamaican Calypso um, and some of the early sketchoons, you know, um, I can't remember them right now. I mean, I had a rough night last night. I didn't get any sleep. I was coughing all night. Um, no, it's fine. I'm, just, I'm more interested but, in genres um, <clears throat> than and, um, and some Jamaican versions of um, R&B tunes. And, um, and, and some folk tunes, you know, I remember uh, Keith and Enid, um, it's a duo, did um, tunes, um, basically Jamaican folk songs. And then you had um, the early sketch tunes by um, the Maytals, Scatterlights, Wailers. Um, how were you getting access to these? Because these weren't being played on the radio. So where, how were you hearing As that? I said before, my father had a blue spot gram, gramophone. 
and he bought records. So you know, listen, to the listen to the answers so you don't have to repeat the questions. Okay. Now tell me about, you went to school in Herne Hill, I think. Is that no, right? I went to school in Tulsa, Tulsa Secondary School, which was a mixed, um, ethnically mixed school. But in those days, um, it was a comprehensive school, and in those days, a comprehensive school meant that it catered to working class, um, lower middle class, and kids for in between, let's say, from the skilled working class. Um, and it was, um, it was um, um, stratified. It was a stratified system, you know. Immigrant kids were in the bottom stream. You had three streams, Im immigrant kids in the bottom stream, working class kids in the middle stream, and the more middle class kids in the, in the top stream. It was that straightforward, even though that it was straight, about intellectual ability? That straightforward, and you, um, if you were in um, the top stream, you had a chance to study maybe Latin and Greek and some foreign language. Um, and if you were in the bottom stream, you just did the basics, but you could work your way up from the bottom stream to the middle and from the middle to the top. Is that describe your? And yeah, I worked my way up from the bottom to the middle. From bottom to the middle? Yeah. Um, tell me about how music operated in your school environment. Music operated in our school environment. By the time we became teenagers, um, we were all into music, you know. We're Music is part of a youth culture, it's, you know. Um, all the kids were into music, white kids, black kids, everybody into their own thing. Um, and um, most of the black kids were either into soul music or into Jamaican music. And in those days, when I became a teenager, the early, it was the rock steady. The music was just evolving from ska to rock steady. And Rocksteady was the music of my generation, you know, and, and we slowly graduated to reggae. Um, and um, we just loved it. It was, it was um, our music and it gave us a sense of identity. It gave us uh, the basis for a, an independent cultural identity. Uh, which was important because, you know, you were, you were living in a, a racially hostile environment. And I guess for all peoples of diasporas, you fall back on your cultural roots in a culturally, politically, socially hostile environment. And, um, you know, um, you wouldn't hear any of this music on the radio, unless occasionally you might hear something on one of the pirate stations like Radio Caroline or Radio Luxembourg one or two of those DJs would play, you know, the, the odd ska tune or the odd um, rocksteady reggae tune. That's how people like Prince Buster became popular. They began to be taken up from an underground level <clears throat> and started to get um, airplay on, um, on the mainstream radio. And um, in the 60s, you know, you had people like Prince Buster who had some hits. Prince Buster had a huge following, in fact. Prince Buster and Derek Morgan. And the early skinheads, who had nothing to do with the National Front, the early skinheads, um, they were big fans of uh, Prince Buster and um, Derek Morgan. And um, 
And the other black guys, black kids, you know, some of the ones who were, um, felt they were a little bit more sophisticated than the rest of us, were more into soul music. You know, you had this, you had this soul reggae divide, but um, it wasn't, the borders were porous. You know, there were reggae guys who were into soul music and soul guys who were into reggae music, you know? When you're young Cause you can only be young But for once Enjoy yourself and have lots of fun There's a slight class divide there, or at least an aspirational aspirational divide, divide rather than class divide. Ah. Probably we all came from the same working class, um, black working class. But soul music spoke to a more aspirational mindset, or drew people who were wanting to associate themselves beyond just Caribbean nightlife. What about race mixing around this music? You mentioned Prince Buster becoming popular. Was there a degree then around this black music of mixture socially or was it very divided in that era? Well, as I just said, um, Prince Buster um, and people like Derek Morgan, Laurel Aitken, who was one of the Jamaican 
pioneers of Jamaican music, they all had huge followings. I think particularly amongst the mods. Um, back in the day, you had the mods and the rockers. Um, mods were more um, sort of uh, cool kind of guys who were into sort of black music. Um, rockers were more associated with, with teddy boys and, and, and thugs and all of that. Um, the mods were had their own particularly, particular sense of style and they were cool and sophisticated and they were into black music, you know. So, um, from the very beginning, Jamaican music had a, a white following, yeah. significant white following in this country. Um, in terms of socialization, they had their own scene and we had our own scene. Um, there would be, I remember back in the, in the, in the early 70s, there would be a place up in, up in Crystal Palace, a club where they just play reggae music. And, you know, it would be white, white DJs playing this music. And the audience would be white. You might find the odd one or two black kids there. But it was a white reggae scene, you know. Um, and there was bands like G.G. Taylor and the reggae guitars. It's a white English reggae band who were very, very popular. Had a huge following. G.G. Taylor and the reggae guitars. But in terms of <clears throat> um, our scene, my, uh, the, the scene that I was part of, um, it was a black, black, black youth doing our own thing. Um, and our culture was based around the sound system. Our youth culture was based around reggae. And the nexus of that was the sound system. Um, youth clubs, community centers, and basement joints. You know, and of course, there was the house party, the blues dance, which um, working class black people trying to raise money to decorate their house or to um, for whatever reason, would keep a dance on a Saturday night, hire a sound system and make money from drinks and food and all of that. So our scene was basically a Jamaican black youth scene. Occasionally one or two of our white friends might, might, might come along, but it was essentially um, our own thing. Did you go into the West End and go to any of the West End? I didn't, but some of my friends did, you know. Um, the uh, 7-Eleven Go-Go Club, um, or that, I think that, was, that was down in Kennington. There was Tiles, there was, um, I um, can't remember this club, um, Sir Coxon used to play there, I can't remember the name of it now. It changed name. Flamingo. There was the Flamingo, there's this club on Prade Street in, um, in Paddington. You know? I didn't go to those places, but some of my friends did. But yeah, there were clubs, there, there were... There were also other clubs outside of the West End <clears throat> that people went to. Can you tell me the name? The club, the club that I used to go to was the Ram Jam Club in Brixton. Um, that was the m most famous. <clears throat> and I used to attend the three to six session. My mother used to say, boy, you're worshipping God and the devil on the same day. Because I would go to church, the 11 o'clock church service in the morning. And then at three o'clock I was off to the Ram Jam and uh, they played all the latest releases from Jamaica and occasionally on a Saturday night they would have live bands, you know. Um, I think I saw Jackie Mitter on the Soul Vendors with Ken Booth and 
Alton Ellis. These were the kings of Rocksteady back in those days at the Ram Jam Club, you know. Um, but I had to be in by 11, so it was a bit touch and go. Can you name, just give me the names of some of the sound systems that were around at that time? I mean, there have been so many. Um, God, if I can remember, <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm knackered. Um, there was Sir Coxon. And there was a Coxon and Duke Reed, basically um, trying to copy the names of the, the two main sound systems in Jamaica, who were the two main record producers in Jamaica. So we had Sir Coxon and we had Duke Reed. You had um, Count Nick. You had um, Neville the Musical Enchanter. You had, um, you had um, Soprano B in Brixton. Uh, later on, you had sounds like um, Nasty Rockers, you had Frontline Sound, um, you had um, Never King, you had Danny King, you had Whoppy King. Um, and then up in places like Birmingham and Manchester, you had Quaker City and some of the big sound systems. When they had big sound clashes, <clears throat> you know, you'd have London, Manchester, Birmingham, you know. Would you travel out of London? Me personally, no. Would you stay local? No. Tell me about what drew you into making music, or at least, was it? I came to music through poetry. Yeah. And I came to poetry, well, I say came to music, to making music through poetry. And I came to poetry through political activism. I became involved in the Black Power Movement. Um, I belonged to that generation on both sides of the Atlantic, was swept along by this new wave of consciousness that came in the, rights of the, in the, in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, um, and uh, I became a panther. I was part of the Black Panther Movement. And in the Black Panther Movement, discovered black literature and discovered poetry, black poetry or poetry about black people, about our um, history and culture and so on. And um, I was always drawn to um, lyrical poetry. And when I began to write, I, I began firstly imitating whoever I happened to be reading at a particular time until I was able to find my voice. And what helped me to find my voice was Listening to the reggae DJs from Jamaica, people like Uroy, Big Youth, um, um, King Stitt, Iroy, um, listening to um, spoken word poetry, oral poetry coming out of the United States, the poetry of people like um, the last poets, um, the kind of um, vernacular language poetry that was coming out of America by people like Langston Hughes, who was a jazz poet and a blues poet, working out of those traditions. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, people like that. Uh, Donnell Lee, Leroy Jones. Uh, these are stuff that I was reading. So I was both reading and listening. And then the thing that really freaked me out was the album I was listening to when I just came in here was Groundation by Count Ozzy and the Mystical Revelation of Rastafari. And I was just 
it just blew my mind, this combination of, of percussion, percussive rhythms, um, jazz, you know, um, narration, oration, um, and uh, all of those elements contributed to, to, to me finding my voice as a poet. And just as, you know, Langston Hughes and these guys were writing jazz poetry, I wanted to write reggae poetry. Um, because for me, the, the bass guitar, um, the bass guitar was, was sounded as, as, as though it was speaking, you know, um, like it was a talking bass, you know. Um, so I wanted to, to write words that sounded like a bass line. I wanted my meter to be the meter of the bass line and, and the speech, the actual vocalizing of the words to be like the reggae bass line. And um, that's how it happened. And I figured to myself that I was writing, I was working with some, some, some Rasta musicians, guys I went to school with, called, they called themselves Rasta Love. And I used to chant my poetry alongside the the drums. You know, something similar to um, what was happening on Groundation, Count Ozzy and the Mystical Revelation of Rastafari. And, um, um, you know, we used to do that. You get an audience of maybe 15, 20 people. It was like a huge crowd back in those days in the local youth club, community centre. And then I thought to myself, well, if I could find a way like these reggae DJs to put my poetry to reggae rhythms, maybe it would reach a wider audience than, you know, publishing books. But I'd, I'd, all of my poems began life as written poems, even though I was working within an oral tradition. Um, I was influenced by an oral tradition. Black, black, bubble down beat bouncing, rock wise tumble down sound music, foot drop fine drum blood story, bass histories are moving is a hurting black story. Thunder from a bass drum sounding, lightning from a trumpet and a organ, bass and rhythm and trumpet double up, team up with drums for a deep down searching. Rhythm of a tropical electrical storm Pulled down to the base of the struggle Flame rhythm of historically yearning Flame rhythm of the time of turning Measuring the time for bombs and for burning Slow drop, make stop, move forward Dig down to the root of the pain Shape it into violence for the people They will know what to do, they will do it Shock black, bubble down, beat bouncing Rock wise, tumble down, sound music Foot drop, fine, drum blood story Bass histories are moving, these are hurting black story
Rhythm of a tropical electrical storm Cool down to the base of the struggle Flame rhythm of historically yearning Flame rhythm of the time of turning Measuring the time for bombs and for burning Slow drop, make stop, move forward Dig down to the root of the pain Shape it into violence for the people They will know what to do, they will do it Shock block, bubble down, beat bouncing Rock wise, tumble down, sound music Foot drop, fine drum, blood story Base trees are moving, is a hurting black story All of my poems began life as poems on the printed paper. I was straddling both the, both the, 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 the oral and the, and the scribal tradition, if you like. And it seems to make sense to me to make these uh, poems into records. They're all published. I mean, I published my first book, um, Voices of the Living and the Dead, in 1974. Dread, Beat and Blood came out in 1975, published by Bogle Overture. When I did my first album, Dread Beat and Blood also, it was poems from that book yeah. that I actually did. And how that happened is that Virgin Records became involved in exploiting reggae. And I knew a guy from Brixton called John Varnum, an English guy who was a teacher at Santley School, uh, junior school of Acre Lane. And he was doing marketing in his spare time. He was a musician as well, but and a teacher, and he was working spare time doing marketing for Virgin. And he knew about my work and thought I, was the, I would be a good person to help him with the writing the copy for the adverts and all of that. And that's how I got involved. And I said to John one day, I said, you know, my friends tell me that my poetry sounds like music when I speak it without music. Uh, and I would like to make a record one day. And he said, okay. I'll, um, I'll, um, I'll see what I can do. So he spoke to some people at Virgin and they gave me 300 pounds to go and make a demo. And me and some school friends, amateur musicians really, went to a little studio, a little four-track studio in Wimbledon and made a demo. And then he arranged a meeting with Richard Branson. And Brett Branson liked what he heard and they offered me a deal um, to do an album. Um, and that's how it all started. How did you uh, get together with Dennis Bavel? Was he one of these original musicians? No, I knew Dennis through, or knew of Dennis through my school friend Vivian Weathers, who played bass on a couple of my albums. Uh, Vivian um, knew more about the music scene than I did because he was a musician. And um, I knew of Dennis through a sound system that he used to, he used to play a sound system called Sufferer. And they were based in Battersea, but they played all over the place. And I remember going to listen to them at the Metro Youth Club over in Ladbroke Grove. And um, w at the time, I think I was at university at the time, and I was trying to earn a bit of extra pocket money by doing interviews for the BBC World Service. They had a program called Caribbean Magazine. And if I knew of some reggae artists coming over, I'd try and get an interview with them and maybe earn a little 
15 pounds or 12 pounds from the BBC back in them days, uh, cheapskates, still are. And I arranged to do interview, uh, well, Dennis <coughs> had a band called Matumbi, and they were like the biggest reggae band around at the time. And um, they were playing in a club up in Stoke Newington um, called, I can't remember. Um, they were playing a very famous club. They just made a film about it recently. Um, you're going to have I'll to check that out. Anyway, Dennis was playing in uh, the... It's like Carrick Club, is it? No, no, no. no. That's the club, yeah. Uh, yeah. They were playing in, um, in this club over in Stoke Newington called the... Anyway. And I arranged to interview the group Matumbi. And um, I spoke to Dennis and I said, one of these days I'm going to make a record. And my friend Vivian says, you're the man. Because not only was Dennis a sound system operator, a musician in Matumbi, he was also a recording engineer. And word had it that he was the only recording engineer who knew how to record reggae properly to get the drum and bass sound right. Because all the other English sound engineers would record reggae as though they were recording an ordinary rock band. And you had to record the bass and the drums for reggae in a particular way to get the right kind of sound. So Dennis was the man and he was working at a studio called Gooseberries. So once um, I got the go ahead from Virgin, I, I linked up with Dennis and um, with some of these amateur and semi-professional musicians and we went and made the album. And it was voted reggae album of the year in, in Sounds magazine or Enemy or one of them music papers, Vivian Goldman nominated it. And um, the rest is history. How did it feel to be a kind of a poet? I mean, there weren't very many. Were there any black poets in Britain? Yes, there were, of course there were black poets around at the time. Suddenly you were the one who was there were other black There were other records. black poets around at the time. Um, there was Rudy Kaiserman. There was um, Jamal Ali from Guyana. Um, there were poets of, a, of the older generation, I mean, like my mentor, for example, a Jamaican um, novelist and poet called Andrew Salke, who was himself a broadcaster. The older generation, uh, people like James Berry. Um, and um, there was a woman from Brixton called Gloria Cameron, who used to recite poems by Louise Bennett. And Louise Bennett is the mother of Jamaican poetry. She is the first poet um, who made the Jamaican language acceptable as a valid vehicle for, for poetic discourse in the Jamaican language. Rent me no swimming pool. 
So there was a poetry scene around, but a lot of the poets, um, Sebastian Clark was another poet, but a lot of the poets I found around at the time when I, I be became interested and involved in poetry, a lot of the black poets were sounding too much like American, black American poets. I mean, I was influenced by a lot of African-American poets, but I didn't want to sound like them because I'm Jamaican, so I wanted to sound Jamaican. And it, for me, it has always been one of my criteria of, of, of poetry, was the authenticity of voice. And maybe that's why I abandoned trying to write a lot of verse in English. Because it was, it didn't feel natural and it felt derivative. Whereas writing in the Jamaican speech, in Jamaican speech, I felt I was doing something which was natural and, and um, made sense to me. I was writing about the, the black experience in Britain, the Caribbean, the experience of the Caribbean, the Jamaican diaspora here in England. Why do so in the rarefied language of classical English poetry when I could do so in the everyday spoken language that I grew up with? You have a problem? No, there was someone at the door, so we're just seeing them. This is so interesting to hear you say this. So I wonder if you could just expand a bit on the, the influence of black America on, as it were, global ideas of blackness and how to be black has been very powerful. You mentioned black power, civil rights. and Well, the African-American population was the most advanced of the African diasporas, being a part of the most powerful industrialized nation in the world. So we came under, we were very much influenced <coughs> by them in many ways, um, in music, in, in literature. Um, the the um, a lot of the, the poets of French negritude, poets like Amy Césaire and Senghor, they were all influenced by the Harlem Renaissance, which happened, which was a, a movement of um, 
African American, black writing, black literature in America during the, in the period between the two wars. Um, uh, and of course, there was the, the whole black consciousness movement, which was started, well, not started by, but, but someone who played a major part in that nas black nationalist movement and the raising of black people's consciousness was a Jamaican by the name of Marcus Garvey. Um, so <clears throat> the Jamaican influence on the, on the, on the African-American um, movement trickled back to us in the Caribbean um, and um, made a great impact on us. And I think it's the same goes for a lot of um, um, not just people in the, in the African diaspora in different parts of the world, but in Africa itself. Garvey impacted on people like Kwame Nkrumah and Jomo Kenyatta, and these people were part of the old Pan-Africanist movement who, um, who agitated and struggled and waged war for independence. Yeah. Can you talk about the relationship between reggae and the black politics of the 70s and 80s in Britain, the period of very... Well, reggae music, one of the defining characteristics of reggae music back in the day, I mean, like all popular forms, music forms, you know, um, with young people being the main, um, you know, singers and player of instruments, were concerned with the everyday theme of romance, boy, girl, love, you know, that kind of thing. But one of the defining things about reggae was it was a very spiritual music, very, very spiritual music, um, and <clears throat> I think Rastafari had a lot to do with that. And um, it was very political. Um, you know, you would have the odd protest song here and there in British pop music and in folk music and so on. But most of the, most of the tunes, that, a lot of the tunes that was coming out of Jamaica were speaking to the the everyday existence, um, the, 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 the conditions of existence, the, the struggles, um, um, the anxiety, um, the suffering of ordinary people. It was the voice, reggae music was the voice of the masses of Jamaican people, the black peasantry and urban dwellers who didn't have a voice. Um, that was what made um, reggae music unique. And there was this strong um, stream of African consciousness running throughout it from the very beginning. You know, Garveyite ideas. Uh, Rastafari gave reggae its ethos, um, I think, in many ways, because it was Rastafari was both spiritual and political. It was anti-colonial. And it was also um, deeply spiritual. Um, so, um, and then with the with the with the advent of black power, that also began to be reflected in the consciousness of the people in the music. You know, um, what was it relating to in British culture? Why was it in Britain? Then this is I was talking about Jamaica. In Britain, um, we could identify with the same sentiments. You know, the African diaspora 
and the Caribbean diaspora in Britain. It was all part and parcel of the same experience. You know, the, the, the old anti-colonial sentiments in the Caribbean found roots here because it was though, even though we were living in the mother country, we were marginalized. We were still, it was though we were still waging anti-colonial struggles here in England. We were struggling against marginalization. Um, so, um, you know, we could identify with all the sentiments that were being expressed um, about oppression um, in Jamaica to our experiences here with the police, with the, with the judiciary, with the schooling system, with the place of work, um, clashes in the streets, with um, fascists and all of that. You know, it, it, you know, and then, in, and then even later on, when, when, when um, somebody like Bob Marley sang a song about, because Bob Marley's song is really particular, because it's, 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 it's specific to his experience in a particular part of Jamaica, Trench Town. And he's talking about concrete jungle. Well, we could identify with the concrete jungle over here, We're living on these housing estates and all the rest of it, and these rundown. Now, Brixton was a ghetto back in those days, you know, and there were a lot of other ghettos up and down the country. Um, so, yeah, we could identify those, those songs, really, which was to do with Jamaica, with our own experiences here in this country because of the, the, the situation we found ourselves in. On this issue of spiritu spirituality, I mean, you were raised a Christian, there was Rastafari, but I know you've also said that you're not a particularly religious person. Or no. Explain the kind of spirituality. You don't have to... You didn't have to believe in God necessarily to feel the Rasta message, or how did, you, how did that feel for you? Well, the closest I came to... Um, well, I grew up in the church, um, and I took all of that for granted. I said my prayers before I went to bed and all that. My grandparents sent me to Sunday school and all the rest of it and all that. When I became politi politically conscious, I began to question all of that and in the end rejected it. When I discovered that the Africa and, and the Americas were, were, were given to Spain and Portugal by the Pope, I thought, no, 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 this is just a load of fuckers, you know. How can this guy sitting in Rome decide, you know, who's going to exploit whom? You know, and um, that was the beginning of my, my um, disillusionment with Christianity and all of that. And then, but the closest I came to being spiritual again was Rastafari, because I could identify with the idea of God being a, being a kind of spirit that indwells mankind, rather than being some omnipotent being out there somewhere. Um, and I, 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 came, I came very close to becoming a, Rastafar, a Rastafarian, but I couldn't really identify with the idea of black people going back to Africa um, as a whole, as a, as a, as a, as a, um, a political movement. And I couldn't identify with this idea of Emperor Haile Selassie being God, you know? Um, 
but I identify with everything else in Rastafari, you know. This, re uh, you know, this, this rejection of, of Western domination, this rejection of <clears throat> um, um, the, the old, the old anti-colonial sentiments, basically, and um, the importance of Africa and um, the idea of black people um, being proud of our ancestry and our culture and our roots um, and so on and so forth. I, I couldn't identify with the, with the um, Selassie's God side of things, but the rest of it. And I didn't think that, um, I didn't think you could turn back the clock of history. Uh, and um, it didn't make any sense to me, the whole scale um, uprooting of the African diaspora and everybody going back to Africa. Some of us didn't even know what Africa was, you know, and we were born how many hundred years afterwards, in, you know. You, you spoke of, of being Jamaican, really. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and perhaps that's a generational thing, partly because, I mean, you weren't born in the UK, but there was a generation coming along that were born in the UK. Mm. And out of, and in the 1980s, you got the emergence of kind of black British identity that in mm. some ways wasn't possible before. What was the relationship between that and music, do you think? Or how did music play in that? I don't know. Um, I was an adult by then. <clears throat> um, but... Um, I would say by then there was the beginnings of the formation of black British musical cultural forms coming out of or evolving from what we created before with reggae and, and ska and rocksteady and all of that, you know, um, with the influence as well as um, influences from North America from the R&B scene. Um, you'd have to ask my kids about that. Well, I will do, or, or <laughs> hopefully I can speak to your kids. Tell me, bass culture, I mean, bass culture is your term, mm. I think. I mean, did you, you coined that, that you have a poem called Bass Culture? We've talked a bit about reggae, we called it reggae, but why, why what does bass culture mean? Then? I think I've already talked about that in the interview. I've talked about the bass line and how important the bass line was for me. But it was all about the sound system and the sound system and, and, um, and reggae music being the nexus of, of a culture of resistance and an independent identity for the black youth of my generation. And uh, as, I said, um, as I said before, bass culture was really a poem that I wrote alongside another poem called Reggae Sounds before I had really found my voice as a poet. And I was groping around trying to find a vocabulary, a literary vocabulary to express all of the, complex, the complexities of all of that. Um, and, um, you know, um, but essentially it's really about the drum and the bass sound, which is basically the, 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 the basic structure of reggae music, the skeleton of reggae music, the drum and bass, um, and in particular the bass lines, and how it related to the old sound system culture, and how that 
was provided the nexus for a culture, an independent culture for black youth. But would you include within that, for example, James Brown, where the drum and the bass also has a huge importance, or indeed drum and bass music, or jungle, or any of the music that's coming? Not so much James. I mean, James Brown was pretty hot and pretty cool, and, and, and those of us who were not soul heads, we were not soul heads, were into James Brown big time, mm. you know, because that, that music, man, that band of his was something else. And, you know, um, yeah, but... Um, all of that, you know, um, jungle, um, drum and bass, dubstep, and all of that, all of that's coming out of reggae. It's all coming out of dub. Because dub is basically drum and bass. Uh, the music stripped down to its, its, its bass, skeletal basis with the, with the um, addition and the use of sound effects um, paved the way for um, what's happening now in the digital age, you know? That's where it's all coming from. Just on the issue of, you've, you've, been a, you've, you've mentioned how you got into politics, uh, got into poetry via politics and music via politics. You've had a career in politics, as it were. Not, I have not a career. Not a career. <laughs> <laughs> politics has never been a career for me, your, it has been my activism. Your poetry career has been informed <laughs> always by a political sensibility and yeah. sentiment. So where, where, here now, 2017, what does it look like to you? Do you feel like some of those battles have been won? Are they having to be refought on different Well, terms? of course, we won some battles, yes. Black people are no longer marginalised in the way we were when I was a youth. Um, we've won a lot of battles and we built autonomous political organisations and cultural and social institutions. All of those worked hand in hand together. And through um, protests, through agitations, through riots, uprisings, and insurrections, we've gotten to the stage where we are now a, a little bit closer to the periphery, a bit closer to the, to the center than um, being stuck on the periphery of British society. We have black members of parliament and so on and so forth, black middle class and all the rest of it. But there's some struggles are still being fought. And it's depressing to know that the youth, you know, like my grandson, are still having to wage the same battles we had to wage against the police, you know. Um, so yes, we've made some progress, but it would be a complete and utter nonsense to talk of Britain as being post-racial. Just, that's just rubbish. Um. Not to get too kind of meta on this situation, but I am interested to hear what you've got to say about the fact of this project, the Base Culture Project. Why do you think it's important that this... Because it's a part of our history. It's a part of our a cultural history and the way that black culture has impacted on British culture. You know, it's like Black History, where we have Black History Month in this country. Um, Black History, History Month is important because not only is it important to black people, it's very much part and parcel of British history. You know, it's part of British history. We, we weren't taught it in school, but it's British history. It's black history, but it's British history. We've had an impact on the society um, in many ways, specifically in terms of culture. Why shouldn't it not be part of um, 
studied like everything else. You know, it's, 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 it's a part of the fabric of British life, British culture. It's important, you know. Um, where, where do you think um, somebody like, um, what's that little youth? Because I'm bonk Bonkers Youth, what's his name? Um, um, some people say I'm Bonkers Dizzle, Dizzle. Where do you think Dizzle Rascal is coming from? Uh -huh. um, Dizzle Rascal is, is huge in this country, you know. Where do you think all that's coming from? It's just... You seem to be implying that the country that you arrived in, that you mentioned this rain, this horrible grey day in November, has is changed and has been changed partly by the kind of things. It's changed. About. It's changed. We've helped to change it, and in helping to change it, we've changed ourselves. <laughs>